0: Welcome to Desire Made Real, a Discovery of Witches podcast, and our second bonus episode of season two. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Anya. For this bonus episode, the two of us are going to just talk general about the final five episodes of the season, with perhaps a bit of a focus on Anya's oeuvre.
1: I just wanted to follow up a little bit on the question you asked last episode, um, because I was talking about... Uh, the concept of incomplete penetrance basically where you can have a dominant gene Mm -hmm. but not have that gene be expressed um so basically a way of getting something that acts like a carrier status but when the gene itself is considered to be dominant right because Vampires, since um, they don't reproduce by mixing their genes with another vampire, um, they reproduce asexually. So, you know, when Matthew made Marcus, all of Marcus's vampire DNA would have to come directly from Matthew. Um, There's no there's no mixing the way there is like when humans or witches reproduce. So how do you get carriers when when you don't have two copies of a gene and a chance for a recessive version of a gene to be hidden so and it basically turns out my kind of guesses were pretty correct so there's three i would say like big categories for reasons why you might expect incomplete penetrance for a dominant gene or a gene in an asexual system where there's only one copy And so the first, um, which is one that I mentioned last time, is the influence of the environment. So, you know, things like temperature, nutrition, stress levels, those kind of things um, can affect the way that traits get expressed in people. Um, The second category is influences of the person's characteristics. So things like age or sex, like the hormonal status could change how different traits are expressed so for instance um, some things are expressed more often in men than in women um, because the different hormones or some things only get expressed in older people but not in younger people and then the third big category is the influence of other genes um, besides the the main gene that you're focused on so in this case again because vampires reproduce asexually it would have to be something about the human genes right like if Marcus has all of the same vampire DNA that Matthew does there's no chance you know for like different genes from a, a second parent to come in and have an impact so it would but in theory it could be something in their human DNA so like an interaction between vampire DNA and human DNA um that could somehow affect like how much of a protein is made or what that protein interacts with in the body so in theory there are ways for blood rage to skip generations even though um with vampire genetics being asexual it's not recessive in the way that we usually think of carriers so i'm i'm really excited to see what happens in season three 'Cause you keep telling me that like we do get answers about Blood Rage and so I, I'm excited to find out what what those answers are.
0: Yes, it is it is very difficult for me not to want to delve into this conversation, but you haven't read book three or seen season three yet or anything like that. So I'll just yeah. I'll just hold on to that desire for now.
1: <laughs> we'll uh we'll make it real next season. Yeah. And then the one other thing that I wanted to mention from like a research perspective was something that you and Mandy talked about Mm -hmm. in um, one of the other podcast episodes. Um, You were asking basically about how sex scenes are filmed um, and thinking about, you know, like how awkward and weird that might be Mm -hmm. um, for the actors because, you know, they're pretending to have sex with each other in front of a crowd of people. Yep. Um, and so there is actually a specific job for dealing with that. It's called an intimacy director or an intimacy coordinator. Um, and I think it's fairly new, um, but it's being adopted pretty widely in Hollywood now, I think, especially in light of the Me Too movement. Right. Um, and so I'm not sure how widespread it is in, um, you know, the UK I did actually, I first found out about this job based on the TV show Sex Education, which is set in the UK and has mostly British people, but it's produced for Netflix, so I don't know, like, all of the production history of that, but... Right. Um,
0: I've heard about it through Bridgerton, which is also set in the UK and filmed there and for Netflix, so...
1: Okay. So at knows? least Netflix is doing good at hiring intimacy coordinators Yeah, um, for their Or stuff. the UK is. Or, yeah. <laughs> so... The, the intimacy director for sex education is Ida O'Brien. And I think she was like pretty formative in developing the guidelines for, you know, how you can plan and film sex scenes in a way that like really protects um, all of the actors involved and makes it a uh, as comfortable an experience for them as it can be. Um, and on her website, she has a set of guidelines um, that she's come up for come up with um for you know best practices for how to film sex scenes um and so if listeners are interested um they can definitely check that out okay so speaking of sex um i had a question for you okay Um, so when in the fight scene between matthew and philippe yes Um, When, uh, you know, afterwards, I think Matthew tells Diana, this is why we can never be truly mated. Mm -hmm. And what did you think he meant by that?
0: So I can see your note here. So I know what you're heading towards because your note here says losing control versus passing it on to their children. Yeah. As far as the show is concerned, Matthew and Diana don't know they can have children.
1: I see. That's right.
0: So losing control.
1: So he's just worried about, like, sexy times being so exciting. Oh,
0: I don't think it even has to do with sexy times. um, Or necessarily.
1: I see. Right, right. Okay, no. Now I'm remembering he goes into it later when they're in Bohemia. And the issue is that he doesn't want to be mated to her because he's worried about being able to control himself if someone threatens her.
0: Yeah. Or uh, if somebody maybe even just sort of flirts with her. I see. Or if okay. she, you know, wants to live her life because he does want her to do that, but he's not sure if he'd be able to let her.
1: I see. So he's he is worried about his own possessiveness. Yes. I guess. That is, I find that really interesting in the context of all of the other kind of like vampire shows and stories, right? Because I feel like, again, Twilight is really the only one I'm familiar with. But when you do have vampire boyfriends acting in like super possessive, jealous ways, it is usually portrayed as romantic and not as something that they have self-awareness of. Yeah. So I think it is really cool that they give Matthew that Mm self-awareness and the show is acknowledging that, like, yeah, it's kind of romantic, but it also is, like, pretty not good.
0: Yeah. I sort of tried to bring this up when we were, when Mandy and I were recording about episode seven. Uh, I didn't do a very good job with it, though, because that's the one, that's the one in Bohemia where Matthew says something like, you know, uh, I wouldn't hurt you, but I would, I would hurt for you i would just kill everyone and you can tell that he really doesn't want to and i Mm -hmm. like it because like you said it's the whole i would destroy the world for you in fiction is generally presented as desirable Mm -hmm. and in this one he's like i really don't want to kill all these people but i don't i don't know if i can stop myself
1: yeah yeah i think um i think you're spot on and i i think um When I was watching them to prepare for this episode, I binged all five episodes in one day. And I feel like there are certain threads between different episodes that you actually pick up on more when you watch it that way. Yeah. Um, And I think that is one of those things, um, you know, connecting their conversation in the earlier episode. And then when Matthew is talking about it in Bohemia, I just kind of forgot about it. Um, In that episode, also, I really loved the conversation between Diana and Philippe where they're kind of going toe to toe. And I think you and Mandy definitely highlighted how amazing that scene is mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I just wanted to emphasize how interesting it is that I think it's Diana's power that wins Philippe over onto her side. And then she follows up by saying that her love should be enough. And I just uh I think there's something really interesting there. Maybe about like you know, the way that human culture has evolved over time or something like, I don't know, I feel like in the 1590s, right, like love. Mm. I mean, love was uh, like, yes, something that people experienced and knew about as a concept, but it wasn't like really the foundation for marriage or partnership, you know, in the same way, like marriage was more of an economic and political arrangement.
0: Right. Um, Although we and- don't necessarily know that. That that's true between
1: vampires, if that makes any sense. That is true. Especially yeah. since
0: they have the whole mating thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good point.
1: Uh, but I did just, that was one of the things that I noticed on this watch through, that it is it is her power that makes him come to respect her. And that's kind of independent of her relationship with Matthew, which is interesting, right? Because she's like having to prove herself as a partner to him, but her worth just comes from, yeah, her own power as a witch.
0: I don't know if I necessarily agree with that interpretation that it's her power that wins Philippe over.
1: I don't... uh... I think... Go back and watch the scene, though, because he is, like, when she kind of starts sparkling and, like, her magic becomes visible through the power of CGI, I feel (laughs) like that's when he... I mean, he wasn't I mean, obviously, he was trying to bring them together before that even right, like, by bringing up the fact that they hadn't consummated and like making sure that they were being honest with each other. I mm-hmm. mean, it wasn't like he went from from hating her to loving her. But I feel like that was the moment where he like fully accepted her. Um, I don't know. I've, there was some, definitely something about her having to prove that she was good enough or like a, truly his equal in a way. I don't know.
0: I, uh, so I've always thought that he sort of started to accept her when he realized that Isabeau accepted her. So when he saw Isabeau's ring. Mm. And then the power thing, it's hard to say just because I have the two conflicting interactions with Philippe in my head of the, the show versus the book. I think that that's more when he realizes who and what Diana and Matthew are.
1: I see. He like understands
0: I mean that's just my interpretation. If you okay. if you think differently then then I mean, we never actually have Philippe, you know, write this out for us. So if you if you feel differently about it, then that's one hundred percent correct, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I actually I like your interpretation better. I feel like I was being I don't know. Like, I was kind of interpreting what I felt like the scene was trying to say, but I also, like, didn't really love it, you know? Right. Um. And so I was kind of, like, trying to justify it, I guess, after the fact. um. You know, by being like, well, maybe he's a product of his time. But I do, I, yeah, I think I like your version better, so maybe I'll just go with that one.
0: <laughs> I guess I'm just here to disagree with you.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's more interesting, right?
0: Yeah. But, I, I don't know, I guess to go a little deeper into it, because... Philippe does ch- try to bring about Matthew's blood rage so that Diana can see it, so that, you know, all their secrets are out. And he he talks about how Matthew doesn't really have any faith and how, you know, I don't know. I think in his own flawed way, Philippe is trying to bring them together even before he sees mm-hmm. Diana go all sparkly. Okay. I'm not saying he makes the best choices. I love Philippe, but he is a very flawed individual.
1: And I do agree with you and Mandy that I think that episode is one of the strongest and most interesting episodes of the season. And it like has some of the best character work. Yeah. And I especially loved... you know, and you and Mandy mentioned this too, but the way that um, it kind of cuts back and forth between Philippe and Isabeau in their separate times.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and really, like, makes you feel like they are connected to each other. Um, and like you and Mandy said, the, like, time travel mind fuck of, like, you know, these two separate timelines going, like, kind of two separate time tracks traveling forward at the same time, even though that's not really how time works, but maybe it is. Let's not think about it too hard. I was curious, though, what you thought about Philippe's mention of the afterlife Mm -hmm. in his letter to Isabeau, because I feel like, um, you know, the vampire lore in this universe is just very different than I think it is in a lot of other, um, like, fictional... Universes. I mean, obviously, um, even before Philippe mentioned the afterlife, like we knew that Matthew was very Catholic, Mm -hmm. um, right? Whereas, like in a lot of vampire shows and books, vampires are, you know, unholy, right? They're associated with like the devil. And, you know, in Buffy, right? Like vampires don't have souls, um, so they don't get an afterlife. And I, yeah, I just thought it was interesting, like thinking about a vampire going to heaven or hell or purgatory or whatever. Um, it was, yeah, not exactly what I expected, but I do think ultimately like pretty consistent with, you know, the rest of of how we see them being just as religious as the humans and other creatures.
0: It's interesting because of how they've cut some stuff out from the books that, that line might have meant something meant something completely different in the book, even though I don't think it was from the book at all. Like I don't believe it was in the letter in the book, but it would it hmm. I have all these things that I want to say about this, but everything is like book related. I, I can not say that Philippe is Greek, so I don't know that he would necessarily That's right. In so heaven. he would
1: he wouldn't be Catholic, he'd be Orthodox or I guess even pre Orthodox if or, he's like yeah. I mean he would have pre existed Christianity yes. and then I guess converted at some
0: point later i don't i don't think philippe is christian at all oh oh that's right because he's just
1: he actually still worships um diana or he brings
0: or artemis uh he brings um same same person yeah Uh, he brings which diana to a temple of diana that doesn't necessarily mean that he believes anything at all i i don't know that we get a definite answer about philippe's belief in the divine he's definitely not christian though i would say because he kind of I wouldn't say looks down on Matthew, but doesn't really get why Matthew is so Catholic.
1: And has no qualms about sending him into Protestant England yeah. to play religious politics. Yeah. That does make more sense now that I'm thinking about it. Um, if he is himself not super religious and sees all of the different flavors of Christianity as just, like, frivolous whatever that got invented after he was born, you know?
0: Yeah, because he's, like, 3,500 years old or something like that, so... Yeah. He's been around a while, he's seen it all. Um. So speaking of
1: religion, this is actually a good segue, Um. I wanted to talk just a little bit about the portrayal of Judaism in the show. mm mm-hmm. Because um, you and Mandy had mentioned that the, the throwaway line about the Jewish golem like, wasn't necessary um, and was just maybe an Easter egg for book readers. Yeah. But I think, you know, the mention of the Golem itself perhaps wasn't necessary, but the the broader scene that it was in, I think it was actually really important to show Emperor Rudolph's attitude towards Jews. And I liked the way that Jewishness, like, featured pretty prominently in the episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Especially because the way that um, the story kind of like uses the creatures and like vampires and witches and demons as allegories for human racism. I think it would it would feel cheap to go back in time and like not put any attention on like some of the most serious types of racism and bigotry that like were happening at that time
0: oh yeah absolutely i i think that they did a really good job with showing how things were bad but doing very little mm-hmm. like there's not really that much with rabbi low but what is there is really good
1: yeah like they show the the golds um i don't know what that is some sort of like metal symbol
0: on it, his it's just a circle i think
1: circle yeah the circle golden circle to symbolize yeah so that everyone who he interacts with knows that he's jewish and so mm-hmm. they can like beware of um you know as emperor rudolph says the typical low cunning of his people fuck that line <laughs> yeah fuck that asshole yeah Yeah. And I think, you know, it really it did a good job of of showing again, like, yeah, the way that people in power will use minorities when it benefits them. And then, you know, just discard them and lean into stereotypes Mm -hmm. as soon as they no longer think it's to their benefit. Um, And I think, you know, it's interesting. So we talk about or we've been talking about the way that they portray, you know, bigotry against Jews in the 1590s, there's not a lot of portrayal of modern racism in the modern day stuff, which I don't think is necessarily bad, right? Because it could be kind of distracting and muddying from the metaphor. But I think in order for that to work, you have to make sure that your cast itself is very diverse. Yeah. And I think that is kind of, the way that they got around that, right? Is that like, okay, we're not going to mention modern day racism and bigotry against people of color, but we're just going to have like a ton of people of color in the cast. And, you know, that scene at Septur where they're kind of making their shadow congregation, I think it was like four out of the nine people there were people of color. I guess if you include the baby, maybe
0: <laughs> more. <laughs> Um, it's interesting because they well, for one thing, I think a lot of modern day racism wouldn't wear itself on it on the sleeve. Um, not to, not that I'm making a joke about the circle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the way that it does in the 1590s, I think a lot of at least not within the group of people that we see.
1: Yeah, like the type of racism is more systemic, subtle racism yeah. that or it expresses itself. In, in different ways besides, like, open bigotry.
0: Yeah, or, um, like, I'm sure the people of color, the characters, have experienced open bigotry. We just wouldn't see them hanging out with the people who would do that, you know?
1: mm mm-hmm.
0: um, But what I do like, and this is actually more, or... Oh, no, I guess it's these episodes also. What I do like is how most of the people coming up with how, you know, like how it's Nat who says you know, the Knights can do more than just protect people who already have privilege. You know, Mm -hmm. it's usually the people of color saying, no, we have to do more. So, and I think that that's a good way that they get around it too.
1: Yeah. Like, so Nat was talking to Marcus about all of that and planting those seeds earlier on. And then it was Phoebe at the table who was like, come on,
0: you guys can do better. Yeah. So I think that's, that's well done of them also. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And you know, this is something that you and I have also talked about off the podcast. but the fact that emily dies at the end um and we haven't had a lot of white characters die up until this point and so you know it is a bit noticeable that um
0: both season one and season two ended with the death of a black woman yeah
1: wait remind me who did oh Juliet. juliet yeah 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 so juliet and emily get killed and that like definitely made me a little bit uncomfortable like thinking about that i mean it's helped by the fact that there are lots of black people in the show still who haven't died and it is also helped i think by the fact that if you are a book reader you know that in the book emily's not um obviously black i think she's kind of like assumed white and so they did you know make the choice to try and diversify the cast by making the character black and you know it is unfortunate I guess that the consequence of that is that in the book the character dies as well and it's important for the plot that
0: she does die. It's also like because most of book two um, and well whatever is told from Diana's point of view so Emily dies off screen Mm -hmm. so even if she were explicitly black in the books which I genuinely don't even remember because I remember I don't remember any character description ever about anyone which is really bad of me but um you do you don't see a black woman on her knees in front of a white man being murdered yeah you know cuz it's off screen
1: yeah basically in the book Diane and Matthew actually return from the past um and get reunited and just are told that Emily was
0: killed yeah
1: yeah and I think you pointed out that, like, if they are going to kill another black woman on the show, that at least they did kind of lean into it a little bit where it's like she is clearly being killed by a white man and she calls him a bigot as he's killing her. And, you know, she's clearly making this choice Um And and choosing to sacrifice herself like for the movement and for the broader good in a way that I think kind of like evokes maybe, um, you know, like decisions that people really had to make in battles for civil rights and stuff. So, yeah. um, yeah. And she specifically, you know, is saying says um, I can't remember her exact words, but, you know, says something like. We're gonna make a new world, and you know Diana's gonna get vengeance on you or for me against you. And so it's like it gave her back some agency, I think, in a way
0: that was really important. Yeah. It also sucks that she's um, a queer woman.
1: Yeah. We got to kill our gays and you know kill the black person at yep. the same time.
0: Yay! And, and there's like one good thing that I can say about this, but it's a spoiler, so I can't say it.
1: Okay. Well, I guess we'll revisit that next season. If I remember. Yeah. So I guess, I don't know. Like, I don't want to absolve the show of all the decisions that they made. I think they were clearly thinking about these things as they were making decisions and I think doing their best with the source material.
0: Yeah. It's hard when your source material is problem has problematic bits. To yeah. And have to. Yeah. It's tough.
1: And when you're like trying to diversify the cast in ways where it's like, OK, you know, is it but is it better to, you know, knowing that this character is going to die? Is it better to not diversify this role or yeah. do we want to like give a job to a, a black woman ac- actor and like have her get the chance to play this really good? interesting part so
0: yeah and i'm glad they did because valerie pettiford was fabulous in that role yeah i love her a lot
1: um and while we're on the topic um of you know kind of like issues of representation and metaphors um i'm curious what you think about the idea of blood rage as potentially a metaphor for disability because I don't know like it comes up to me I think in the context of eugenics right where right you know they Matthew has spent hundreds of years trying to kill off all of the offspring that might carry um you know blood rage and pass that on like that's i think a pretty obvious parallel to um, eugenics in the modern world and like you know i mean you don't want to draw an exact comparison between something like blood rage and actual human mental illnesses or something but like it's a little bit hard not to at least a little bit i don't know i'm i'm interested to keep looking at that going forward um, as we learn more about blood rage
0: and kind of resolve that. I guess it's an interesting thought because um, as much as I don't want to compare something that turns you into a murderous monster to, you know, normal human mental illnesses. It's it's interesting because w- because Matthew had support and you know, family and was able to learn to control it. Mm-hmm. Whilst, yeah, and manage it. Yeah. A lot of the vampires we see. Oh, my <laughs> Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Um, let's say Benjamin, it is implied that he does not have that. Right.
1: Yeah. That is most of the main things that I wanted to say. Everything else that I wanted to talk about is basically just like squeeing about um things that I really liked. One of the things that I really appreciated about the adaptation um of the TV show compared to the book is that I felt like the TV show did a better job of highlighting the parallelism between Matthew getting closure with his father who died and then Diana also getting closure with her father who died. I love it so much. I know it's so good. And somehow when I was reading the book, I just like didn't notice it. (laughs) Um, It was like something about, you know, how they were just like, spaced out through time I was just like super into the plot reading it for the first time it like didn't really stand out to me and then when I was watching through the tv show for the first season I think there's that conversation that Diana and Matthew have um after her father leaves and before they're heading back that just like ties a nice bow on it in a way that like brings it to your attention but doesn't really make it feel you know like you're being beat over the head with the symbolism either or the Mm -hmm. parallelism but yeah it's really it's nice that they you know they both got to go back in time solve their daddy issues and then come back into the present you know with the closure related to you know how they feel about family and and relate to their own family
0: i'm honestly surprised that they don't talk about it more because it makes their whole like uh, on top of everything else that happens it makes their whole trip to the past feel like it was always going to happen. Like it was fate. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So I'm I'm surprised that like Matthew and Diana don't talk about it more, but it like meta-wise, I'm sure that's just because Diana didn't want to write that. But or Diana, Deborah, Deborah Harkness didn't want to write that.
1: Yeah. And it is unfortunate. I like hate to talk about uh performances that I don't really like on podcasts because you never know like who's gonna be listening, but ah uh. I feel like Diana's dad was probably the weakest performance um, in a way where like it just sometimes I felt like I was watching a TV show more when I was watching him. I don't know. I felt like he wasn't quite at the same level as everyone else in the cast. Unfortunately,
0: I didn't really notice, but maybe, you know, when they hired him, they would have tested him for, you know, the two lines that he had and the intense looks that he had in season one. And but maybe, you know, time period isn't his or a period drama isn't his um, strong point in acting.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Just like his delivery on that. Well, well, well. I was like, so I mean, OK, but I think mm-hmm. in in defense of that actor, I think he also had some of the worst writing.
0: That line, the well, 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 I'm pretty sure is his only line that is kept directly from the book.
1: <laughs> it's so bad. It's
0: just so bad. that. Is something that he says in the book at that point. So I don't know, but everything else that he says is different. I'm pretty sure. So I'm not sure why they decided to keep that one line.
1: Yeah, the one line that is like a terrible comic book cliche or whatever. Um, and yeah, the rest of his dialogue is also like not great compared to um, the writing for the other characters. Um, but okay, let's talk about things that I do love. <laughs> I I think one of my favorite moments. Um, is after Diana spits fire at Matthew and then they, like, have sex or whatever and are just hanging out in the chair when Gallo Glass walks back into the house and just, like, looks at the door and the wall and it's just completely silent, just, like, them looking at each other. Like, mm-hmm. amazing acting and so funny and understated.
0: I really enjoy the maturity that you just expressed in have sex or whatever,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, and I have to say, I have enjoyed Gallo Glass a lot more on my second time through. I think, um, we get less Gallo Glass in the TV show than we did in the book. Oh, yeah, and so I think my first time through the TV show, I was just really underwhelmed by him because we just we weren't getting as much of him as we did in the book and so i was like you know he's a a pale imitation i think of of book gallo glass so far but my second time through when i didn't have quite that that same level of expectations from the book i actually really enjoyed what we did get um so i think yeah my my fondness for tv show gallo glass is definitely increasing with more exposure
0: yeah it's, it it's the one thing that they that I'm sad they had to sacrifice with how they rearranged the plot of the book was mm-hmm. that Galaglass comes in later than he does in the book.
1: Yeah, I also, <laughs> oh my god, um, Marcus's line that I have a vampire family now just cracked me up in a completely unintentional way. Like, oh, <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't know why I found that so funny. Just like he's so serious and deadpan in his delivery. And it, there's something that's just, like, inherently funny about that. Like, yeah, my whole family's dead, but whatever. I have a vampire family
0: now. That's an interesting bit, because if you've if you've read Times Convert, you know that Marcus has a bit of a feeling about how some members of his family died. Uh, so I think he is trying to play on that. I How Marcus see. would okay. feel when, when that's brought up.
1: There's like backstory that's not coming through there. That's
0: or it is coming through, but they're not like telling the whole thing, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Um and There's then me being also, vague. I also loved um Phoebe and Isabeau's interaction. Yeah. I feel like um yeah, being the only human in a house of, you know, vampires and creatures and like meeting someone who you know is thousands of years old. Like, that's a really intense thing to do. And um, yeah, the actress who plays Phoebe or the actor who plays Phoebe just pulled it off amazingly. And the dynamic between her and Isabeau was
0: great. I agree. I really like I I really like almost every interaction they have together, basically. Mm-hmm. How Isabeau is always sort of judging her, but in a good way.
1: Yeah. Well, she's just like testing her a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. like seeing how she responds to pressure and when she performs flawlessly, Um, you know, I mean, Isabeau's like, if I can accept a witch, like, of course I can accept a human like easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> um. So there's one other thing that I wanted to mention, and I don't know if I'm reading too much into this or not, but I swear the like violin and cello duet that's playing um, when Diana and Matthew are about to bite slash witch kiss each other. It has the first four notes of the close your eyes theme from when um, Buffy has to kill Angel at the end of season two of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like-
0: it also plays when they have sex in Surprise.
1: Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, their theme.
0: Yeah, their, like, love theme. And yes, no, I noticed this, too. I didn't bring it up because I thought I was crazy, so...
1: No, you're absolutely not crazy. And I well
0: i mean don't say that i mean
1: (laughs) don't say that (laughs) you could be crazy no i don't know like it can't not be intentional right like it's it's not it's a pretty distinctive set of four notes and it's like not just the notes it's the rhythm too
0: okay i'll edit them in and people can make their own judgments
1: yeah compare the close your eyes theme from buffy and angel the music from uh, A Discovery of Witches. I, man, I have never wanted to ask a, a TV producer person a question as much as I want to find that composer and be like, did you do this on purpose or is this just a crazy coincidence?
0: Are you a fan of Christoph Beck or? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't think of his name and it's going to bother me now. Give me one sec. Rob Lane. Is the other, so Buffy was a team composer? No, sorry. Christoph oh. Beck was Bucky. Buffy. Bucky. <laughs> Christoph Beck was Buffy. Rob Lane is Discovery of Witches.
1: I see. Yeah. And then I guess my final note is just that I think it's really interesting um, the way that the final episode ends with Diana going to Hubbard and asking him to look after Jack and becoming a part of his flock right? Because one of the big themes of this whole season has been Diana and Matthew um, sharing all of their secrets and becoming completely honest with each other. Um, And, you know, letting themselves letting each other into every single facet of each other's lives. Mm
0: -hmm. And then
1: right at the end, suddenly Diana gets another huge secret that Matthew doesn't know about. So yeah, I just I thought that that was interesting in that, like, the fact that it kind of contradicts the whole theme of this season makes it stand out even more as like um, an interesting choice that she made. And it makes me even more interested um, to, you know, go on to book three, season three and figure out, you know, what are the consequences of this choice that she's made? I'm taking your silence as acknowledgement that you can't say what you want to say. Because it's spoilers,
0: um, it's that, and also uh, I actually think that it's kind of funny how it all turns out, like <laughs> okay. actually funny, ha ha.
1: I see. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, well, yeah, that's all of the thoughts that I had. So, um, did you
0: not have any thoughts on how they did the pregnancy or anything like that? Um. Well, I it's mean, a kind of big thing. <laughs> I tried
1: not or. How do I say this? I feel like you and Mandy already kind of covered most of what I had to say about that. I mean, which is just that I do think it's interesting that they streamlined it. They got rid of the miscarriage. I mean, it makes sense given the tight timing that they were working on, that there just wasn't time um, to have her miscarry and get pregnant again. I mean, I guess your your other point about uh, how in the book... Diana made a choice to forgo contraceptives, knowing that it was a possibility that she could get pregnant from him. Mm-hmm. So it was more of a choice than um it was in the TV show. Um I mean, I guess maybe I'll have more thoughts about what that actually means once I know what happens to their kid. Um, I feel I feel kind of like it's hard for me to talk about their pregnancy, like not really knowing where the pregnancy goes. Right.
0: Did you have any last things to say? I guess
1: the one note that I haven't said out loud yet is just that, like, I mean, I hated Emperor Rudolph the first time I saw it. He's just horrible. Um, You know, one of those characters who love to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, So irritating. But um, I will very specifically date this podcast recording and say that, like, the whole time I was watching it today, I could not stop thinking about Piers Morgan and Meghan Markle and how... <laughs> Just like asshole fucking dudes can't handle being rejected by women, even if their relationship is like not a romantic relationship, and you know, just like fuck men <laughs> is is my feelings on that. <laughs> Great. Like you'd think that things would have changed a uh, a lot between fifteen ninety one and twenty twenty one, but mm, not really, not as much as we, we hope. I will also say. I was super impressed by Matthew Good's growling, especially um, since I knew, based on your conversation with Mandy, that that is actually just Matthew Good growling. Like a plus, I may or may not have spent some time just like growling to myself <laughs> earlier to see, if you can to do see it. how easy it was. I'm not doing it on microphone. No way. <laughs> 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 not unless during the wrap up you and Mandy agree and we can all growl together <laughs>
0: we can all growl together i don't know about that one <laughs> mine would probably just sound like you know like that early morning croakiness that you get that's that's what i sound like when i growl
1: okay yeah i would yeah very impressed
0: all right as we have been implying um we are all three of us doing a wrap up together where we will talk about our feelings of the season as a whole and answer any questions and address any less corrections that you would like to send in. So you can tweet us at desire made real or you can um, email us at DesireMadeRealPod at gmail.com. And I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me and find my other shows on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin.
1: And I'm Anya, and you can find me and my shows on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's strangely and L-I-T-E-R-L.
0: We're an Eloquent Gushing show, and you can find more of those at EloquentGushing.com. Until we meet again, remember that with every ending, there's a new beginning.
1: So one of the things that I. Oh my
0: god, th- I noticed this too. Sorry.
1: Wait, which one? What? Which one? Oh, the, the, the closer closer eyes theme. Yeah, okay. Did you, but you and Mandy didn't talk about it. No, because I thought I was just crazy. No, you're not crazy. Oh. <laughs> but I'll do that. I'll do that. I'm going to talk about dads first and then I'll okay, go back and okay. do that. Okay. Um,